0: Boo! Uh.
1: You will learn that name. You will remember it.
0: And now... The stud is here. All right, here we go, folks. Welcome in. It's David Summers. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring, back into time, into the Great Smoky Mountains, and there he is, the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up my friend, Ron.
1: Oh, geez, man. Uh, same old, same old man, a little bit cold weather here, kind of cloudy today, but, uh, still beautiful. Uh, being in the mountains is a great place and you know, I hadn't had to deal with any snow yet and I'm sure people up North are probably laughing about that, <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, you know, for a uh, Southern boys, uh, you know, uh, that's a little more difficult, but, uh, Uh, Been doing uh, just fine, man. Uh, Happy, happy to be alive. Uh, Blessed by the good Lord to be here, man.
0: Yeah, the great Charlie Daniels used to say, man, ain't it good to be alive and in Tennessee. Well, listen, Merry Christmas, because we're very close to the holiday. And I know all of our listeners are getting ready and they're getting ready to settle in for a wonderful Christmas weekend. And we hope they'll take the stud cast with them.
1: All right. You ready to do this thing? Yes, sir, my man. I certainly am. Uh, you know, uh, uh, looking forward to it. Actually, this—I uh, hope fans are going to like this one. It's going to be a different format today than what it usually is, and uh, so uh, uh, we're going to we're going to uh, uh, co- cover the rest of the uh, the year of nineteen seventy-seven, man. Uh, end up uh, getting into nineteen seventy-eight on the next one.
0: All right. So we want everybody to know that this will be the last Studcast that we record this year in 2021. Today, we're going to be doing a review of Southeastern Wrestling 1977. So we are going back in time. It had been a record year in a lot of ways, and you're going to tell us all about it. So let's
1: get right to it. All right. uh, You know, uh, uh, I kind of want to remind everybody before we get into it, uh, that, uh, you know, we're like you said, we are not going to have one of these first time in four years, and I hope everybody's going to forgive me. But I'm going to take a little break here, and and uh, we're not going to have one for uh, December twenty uh, ninth, which is next Wednesday. Stud, some people you... get their some people get their stud cast on Tuesdays now.
0: Yeah, do you think Come you on. deserve a break? Come on.
1: Four years, oh, man. Four uh, years, know, come on. I don't know if I deserve it, I am going to take it. it. Yeah, you got to take it. Right? You got to get it, yeah. You know, been four years, and I guess, you know, uh, not missing the broadcast in four years, I guess I'm pretty much entitled to do one. So, uh, yeah, don't don't be expecting one, everybody, next week on the 29th. Uh, but uh, we're going to come back on Wednesday, January 5th, and we'll be starting into 1978 on this next one. And uh, – I'm really looking forward to it because we're going to kind of get to do something I've, I've been wanting to do, Dave, uh, since the very beginning here. Mm-hmm. We're going to kind of sync up 1978 with uh, to 2022. Uh, so when I start, uh, when we start to do this one uh, the next uh, Wednesday on January the 5th, the mm-hmm. next one that you're going to hear, number 231, right? Uh, we're going to be talking about the card of January the 1st, 1978, which is going to be exactly 44 years to the week okay. later.
0: That's cool. Okay.
1: Wow. Now, so, uh, and then uh, hopefully we're going to be able to kind of keep, uh, keep that going every week as we break, it, break things down weekly. And uh, we should be able to uh, maybe stay 44 years exactly, uh, maybe from here on for a long, long ways. So, uh, really looking forward to it. And uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more later in the show. Uh, we'll mention this again for fans. Um, uh, so, uh, I guess, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the Southeastern Rewind, man. Uh, uh, hey,
0: yeah, let's do that. What's going on? Okay, what's,
1: the, what's going yeah, on? Well, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's really kind of on fire, man. This, this, uh, YouTube channel now, and, uh, visited by thousands of fans every week. Gosh, uh, really, really, it's just kind of, it's mind shattering. It's boggling, man. Uh, you know, uh. That what's really happening the uh, last week alone, records were set for the first day views for both the Continental and the USA TV show. Wow. They both had first day records. Uh, wow. Big, big audiences right off jumping on these TV shows, wanting to see them and then really enjoying them. And in fact, uh, I'd like to discuss one of those shows on today, before when we get started here, before we actually get into the finals of, final days of 1977. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Continental TV show number 8 that's on the uh, Southeastern Rewind channel on YouTube right now. And uh, this one contained one of the biggest angles probably ever worked in wrestling, man. Uh, And I'd like to go into some detail about it. Mm -hmm. And I want to do that, especially for fans that have never seen any of these Continental shows. And I know there's a lot of them out there watching them. This is all new to them. They've never seen it. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and I want to kind of set up the angle that we're going to work on that, uh, continental TV show, number eight, I want to set it up for the listeners today, especially those that don't know what happened between me and Bob Armstrong between say the years of 1970, 76, when he started wrestling for me mm-hmm. and on into the eighties. Uh, so, you know, uh, we're going to do a little bit of that on the opening of it here, you know, and, uh, let's just get her started, man. Uh, Bob Armstrong and uh, my family partners, uh, we opened up Southeastern Pensacola Territory in 1978, uh, and that's the second Southeastern Territory at this point in our time frame, and we're going to be talking about that some later in the program here, obviously, today. But uh, Bob Armstrong, my family partners, and I, uh, we all moved down there, 1980, uh, so, and when we opened that territory in 1978, we were still living, I was still living in Knoxville. Bob was living in Knoxville some, and uh, his family lived in Marietta, Georgia. So, I was a heel when we started the Pensacola Territory, and Bob was a babyface. And most of the time, he was my opponent. Uh, week after week, uh, that's kind of how we built that territory from the very beginning was the feud between Bob Armstrong and I, hmm. I was being the Tennessee stud a little bit cocky and confident at that point. <laughs> so, uh, uh, after the sale of Southeastern Knoxville in 1979, all of us moved to Pensacola. I'm talking about Rob and Jimmy moved out of Knoxville. Uh, Roy Lee moved, uh, into Pensacola. We all went down to Pensacola to live. Bob Armstrong, same thing, left Marietta for good. Brought his family and came to Pensacola. So uh, basically, uh, I turned babyface in the late, probably the late part of 1980, down there in Pensacola. Now, Southeastern is closed. There is no Knoxville wrestling. So Southeastern now is based in Pensacola, Florida, at this point. Mm. And uh, Bob and I basically, in, by 1980, had buried the hatchet. And we were finally back, both being baby faces, as we had been during most of the southeasterns Knoxville years. Mm-hmm. So in 1981, my brother Robert was starting his first. Uh, we made a deal, me and him, that we would trade off uh, as bookers every other year, and he was starting in 1981 his first year as booker of the territory. And uh, Bob and I went to the Georgia territory. We left that te- the Pensacola. I uh, went to Georgia, and uh, we wanted to go down there may- basically to be seen on that that uh, satellite channel, the WTBS, Ted Turner's satellite station, yeah. because you could be seen all over the world. <laughs> and, uh, and both Bob and I agreed that it would be really important for us to get ourselves a world reputation. And we were lucky enough to be good enough stars to get invited by the Georgia uh, promotion in the Georgia territory to come to Georgia. So, uh, so we, were, we came back in the fall of 1982. We had been there a while. Bob was there longer than I was. But uh, Bob had really got a lot of great exposure. And uh, and when we came back, it was my year to do the book. I took over the book from my brother. And uh, we worked uh, what most historians regard as probably the biggest and best angle ever in southeastern history. Uh, and uh, after uh, 17 years as a top baby face, uh, Bob Armstrong uh, had been a baby face for his entire career, he's going to turn heel. And, uh, and right in about the December of 1982, and uh, this angle that, uh, that started it all, uh, basically between me and Bob and the families all came out of this angle. And wow, boy, people were shocked by this one. Nobody expected this one, I can tell you that. And uh, the one and only time in his life, Bob's gonna be a heel. And uh, the way it happened was, he's referee in a world championship match between me and Ric Flair. We wrestled in Mobile, Alabama in front of 10,000 people in the auditorium there, big old beautiful round building. And uh, I had Flair beat with my fuller leg lock in the middle of the ring an unbreakable hold, and all of a sudden, Bob, who's the referee, starts dropping elbows on me. <laughs> and uh, then him and Flair get really carried away, and uh, they drag me around, and uh, they put the figure four on me. Uh, Bob puts the spinning toe hold on me. They Bob jumps off the top rope on my knee. I mean, uh, they tear my knee out. They go, they go crazy, and um, I end up with my third knee operation after this match. Wow. And basically, I retired. Uh, and I took my wrestling tights and boots and and I took them to Dothan, Alabama on crutches after getting my surgery and I gave them to Charlie Platt and I said, I'm done. You know, I, I, I can't go any further because, gosh, I just did not expect it, man. Uh, Bob and I had been so close, you know. So Bob became as hated maybe, maybe more so than I was hated as a heel when we first went down to southeastern Pensacola in nineteen seventy eight. And uh, wow did he heat up his bad boy image, man. He started smoking cigarettes on TV. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, yeah he light up a cigarette on TV with Charlie oh talking and you know, what are you doing, Bob? You know, oh he was he was a bad he was a bad boy, man. <laughs> he grew himself a mustache. <laughs> then he's, yeah, oh yeah, he grew a mustache, he's smoking the cigarettes, and he was on there constantly bragging about his girlfriend named Fannie Mae Titwiler, <laughs> <laughs> which was, which was uh, you know, I, I don't know if there ever existed a real Fannie Mae Titwiler, but, <laughs> you know, that's what he says her name was. Yeah. And everybody knew he was a married man, and he was not only a married man, but he was married to one of the most wonderful women that you ever met, man, their name was Gail. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so he's just, he's just, wow. He's just really taking it over the top. And uh, and at the same time, he's terrorizing his own sons who were starting in the business, especially Brad. And uh, they, none of them turned heel. They were all remained baby faces. And uh, he even slapped Brad on TV one day. So wow. uh, I meanwhile, now at this point, I'm sitting at home. I got my knee in a cast uh, for for months, months, rehabbing from the third knee operation. And I was watching old Bob week after week on Southeastern TV, making ass of himself <laughs> every Saturday. It's like, wow. <laughs> but he was really, had some heat. They hated him. I hated him watching it. I was like, God, oh, Bob, it's unbelievable.
0: Yes, Stud, I remember all of this. I couldn't believe it. I saw him slap Brad months later. He slapped my friend, a very popular Southeastern TV commentator, Charlie Platt. All the wrestling, everybody loved Charlie. All the fans loved Charlie. I remember you had gotten well by then, and you came came out of retirement to get even for Charlie Platt.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, you're right, you know, and then Bob and I, and at this point, then, when I did come out of retirement and uh, went and got my boots and my the robes and all the things that I gave Charlie Platt when I retired.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I came back into the ring and Bob and I began a war, man, between us. Uh, the remainder of 1983. And, uh, and the war went on until I finally beat him in the Loser leaf Southeastern match. And he left Southeastern Pensacola uh, when that happened. And uh, when he left, he was still hated by the fans, man, as hated as anybody had ever been there in in that territory. And he went back home to the Georgia Territory uh, for the rest of uh, 83 and uh, on into 84. And uh, soon thereafter, after he went into Georgia, he had a real-life accident, man, while working out in a gym in Columbus, Ohio. Um, he's, he on the bench, uh, was doing pullover press outs. The bench turned over with him. Uh, he dropped about 200 plus pounds in his face. Oh my God. Mm. It almost took his face off. Oh. Uh, he he had to return home to his family in Pensacola. He had several surgeries on his face to get to being looking like a normal person anymore. Mm. Uh, it almost to- tore his nose off. Wow. And uh, you, could, you could hardly recognize him, man. Uh, but most importantly, his injury, though, had kind of brought him back, man. Uh, and he had a ch- huge change of heart from that old Bob Armstrong that the fans had remembered that was smoking the cigarettes and had the Fannie Mae Titwaller girlfriend. You know, he had a big change of heart and, and his personality. And uh, he became the old Bob Armstrong again but he still wasn't able to wrestle for a long time. His face was just, you know, he, he, he would, and they didn't know if he'd ever be able to wrestle again because they had to do some plastic surgery on him too. So, uh, so, uh, after I, after, after, after he was gone and uh, after he returned injured, uh, I was still really popular with with fans at this point. Uh, I'd gotten rid of him when he was a real heel and I started mm-hmm. at this point, uh, having problems with the new Southeastern Tag Champions, which were a great team, was Arn Anderson and Jerry Stubbs, hmm. Mr. Olympia. And uh, this time, now Bob is sitting home like I was, watching Bob with my knee up in the air, <laughs> you know, trying to get well. Bob's sitting at home, hurt, watching me every week, uh, like I'd been watching him about a year before that. So my brother and my cousin, Jimmy Golden, They'd been wrestling partners with me. I was trying to get the Southeastern title away from Arn, Arn and Stubbs. And uh, they'd hurt both my brother and Jimmy. They put them both out of action. So I started bringing in some of the best partners in the wrestling world to get my hands on that Southeastern, on those belts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I brought in everybody from Ted DiBiase to Andre the Giant be my partner. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I pulled out to all the stops, man. But, gosh, they seemingly couldn't be beaten, man. I mean, they those two boys were just fantastic as a team. And uh, then Bob Armstrong, finally well at this point, he started sending these videos to me at TV, asking for my forgiveness and to be my partner. And, uh, you know, he did a lot of them from a the gym, you know, and showing how strong he was and uh, what great shape he had gotten himself back into. And uh, he was constantly on all of them, begging me to forgive him, basically, and to let him make up for what he had done so wrong to me many years earlier in that Ric Flair match in which he cost me the world championship. Uh, Continually, at each video, week after week, asking, uh, you know, take me back, Ron, you need the help, I'm the guy, all that stuff. Hmm. And, you know, he he just kept saying, I'm going to help you beat two of the most hated heels in Southeastern history. And that's what (laughs) Stubbs and Arn Anderson were. Mm -hmm. So he was obviously very convincing to all the fans. And, you know, for week after week, as I ran through some of the best talent in the world as my partners, fans everywhere just kept asking me, why don't you let Bob Armstrong be your partner?
0: Yeah, see, and I saw those videos coming from him every week, Stud. It was—I uh, mean, I was kind of like the fans on that too, wondering why you kept turning him down. He looked really healthy. He looked stronger than ever. His face was a little different looking, but his, considering what he had certainly been through, but his body was that same Bob Armstrong. So, why didn't you do it right away, Ron? Was that—I mean, was that part of the plan? What, uh, what? What was the difference? What was up?
1: Well, well, you know. Uh That must have been, you know, what a lot of fans were asking themselves, and they were asking me. I knew that they were asking themselves that question, and uh, you know, well, Dave, I'll tell you why. You know, I was one of, you know, I was one that had received the knee operation. Man, compliments of Bob, and uh, I also got robbed of the NWA World Title in December of 1922 when I had my leg lock on Ric Flair in the middle of the ring. It was over. I was the next world champion, and Flair was in the hole uh, that had never been broken, and Bob started dropping those elbows in my face, and it's pretty hard to forgive that. You know, I should have been the world champion, man, and, and I would have been if it hadn't have been for what he pulled on me, and, uh, and I would have been one of the most famous wrestlers of all time, but not for him. So <laughs> at least that was my story anyway, but, uh, you know, and, uh, and I had a good reason, basically.
0: Well, but then he he saved you on TV when Arn and Stubbs had injured your partner and were about to tear up your knee Uh, again. Bob came to help you. He said in the interview immediately after he helped you that he had been going to the matches everywhere, hiding in the crowd, waiting for that moment, and then you finally took him as your partner. In the first match together, you finally won the Southeastern Tag Belts in your first title defense against Arn and Stubbs, you turned on Bob and the three of you left him laying.
1: <laughs> What'd you expect, Dave? I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I got even, you know. I mean, uh, geez, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was a little perturbed about it. I mean, how do you get over that? I came from a wrestling family. I, you know, I, I always dreamed of being world champion and mm-hmm. I had it. I mm-hmm. had it in my hands. I mean, I had I had the Ric Flair's knee right where I wanted it, and he was he was done. And so, you know, uh, uh, I started my stud stable at about the time frame. Uh, this is 1984 or so, man. I started up my stud stable. I contacted some of the best heels in wrestling, man, and I went after Bob Armstrong and his sons as well. <laughs> right, you know? and so okay. So when my men, uh, like Arn Anderson, he was one of my stable, guys in my stable, the Lord Humongous, the Flame, Boris Zukov from Russia, Boomer Lynch from South Africa, Jimmy Golden, you know, when when all those guys couldn't get it done, man, I put on my trunks myself, man. I went out there and did it myself what I needed to do. So, you know, that kind of rewinds us back to about 1985, Dave, and the beginning of Continental Championship Wrestling, back to the first Territory TV and Wrestling that was recorded live and from a major arena and hosted by the great Gordon Soley, Uh, takes you back to my stable and that we'd been trying to get rid of Bob Armstrong for a long time, (laughs) back to the Continental TV show number eight, the last one uh, that has this really powerful angle on it that finally gets the job done. So uh, Bob Armstrong lost the Loser Leaves Continental match, the match of the decade, basically, and he ends up gone. And, uh, you know, these fans are, these fans are, have an opportunity to see what happened, man, what actually happened back in 1985.
0: Okay, so I have to admit, it was pretty diabolical, run. You used your brother to get it done. He had never been a heel in his 16-year career, was the former Georgia championship tag partner, with Bob Armstrong in 1972 and his friend for almost 20 years, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, pretty good plan, actually. You know, Uh, Jimmy and I, we set him up really good. We challenged him to a loser lead match in a steel cage. We made the deal so sweet. We said, look, if you and your partner lose, just the guy that loses has to leave. But if either me or Jimmy lose, we'll both leave. Well, you know, how's he going to turn that down? And, uh, you know, we pretty much figured that he's going to turn to Rob, you know, Mm -hmm. because Rob had not ever been a heel in his life, Mm -hmm. you know, and had been Bob's friend for 20 years. And, you know, he was probably going to think that, hey, if I get Rob to be my partner, it's going to make them mad. It's going to upset them. And they're going to that's going to give me an advantage, a psychological advantage. And i not going to be thinking like they should be. And I'm going to get a win and they're going to be gone. And uh, you watched those two shows on on YouTube, didn't you, Dave? Actually, Ryan, I did not. I actually watched it live in
0: 1985 on WTVY TV4 in Dothan, Alabama. Everybody in that part of the country was watching those continental TV shows, and I was one of them. So that was my story.
1: Well, you know, (laughs) I'm sorry. It might have taken a little time to tell this story, you know, and uh, (laughs) – And, uh, and, uh, and I'm glad to hear you were watching it originally, man, in 1985. And uh, I know a lot of people are watching it now in, uh, in 2021. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to let the fans know the history of that continental TV show, number eight from 1985, because that TV show is only the beginning of what's going to become a wild ride for wrestling fans, man, on the, on the YouTube channel, mm-hmm. uh, not just back in those days, But uh, because it is now on YouTube, these future shows are going to be a wild ride for today's fans. They've never seen any of this. Can you imagine? Uh, You've seen it. uh, But uh, (laughs) a lot of these people watching this on YouTube are going, wow, what is this? What is going on here? So, you know, that's kind of the reason I wanted to explain this today (laughs) of kind of what's going on, to let those people that maybe haven't seen it uh, become aware of it. So just want to let everybody know, uh, uh, better cinch up that saddle, not tight out there. Everybody continental TV's ride mm-hmm. is going to be the, one of the best man. Uh, the next one, the, the next number nine of continental TV is going to put the three Armstrong boys in the ring with me, my brother and Jimmy golden and uh, Bob Armstrong, their daddy's gone, man. So, uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe for good.
0: Hmm. Okay, so I love watching all those TV shows back in 1985, and you're bringing them back 37 years later. It makes it fun to watch them again. Anybody out there that was a fan back then or has never seen any of these, if you have not subscribed to the Southeastern Rewind channel on YouTube, you have no idea what you're missing. It's some of the greatest wrestling ever televised, not just continental, but the USA TV shows as well. All right, so Stud, we've been through a lot, but where are we riding today?
1: Well, we're going to rewind again, my man, and we're going to race through the fantastic year of 1977 in southeastern Knoxville. Uh, we're going to talk about the stars of that year, the angles that popped the territory, man, the tremendous crowds that astounded the news media and the rest of the country, and the year that made southeastern wrestling the best small territory in the world, undoubtedly. And we're going to finish this last stud cast, about 1977. Uh with a look at southeastern first card in the Knoxville Coliseum on New Year's Day of 1978, so uh, we're going to cover 77, and we're going to give you a taste of 78.
0: Okay, so I've been looking forward to this one. If you have, uh, if you've got lightning ready, let's gallop into the past, back to 1977 and southeastern wrestling's biggest year so far. This is going to be good.
1: Okay, my man. So we're going to break down 1977. We're going to do it a month at a time. I'm trying to figure this out. When I started uh, putting this review together and trying to to get all these thoughts in mind, uh, I think I want to do it a month at a time. So let's just start with January 1977. And what we're going to do is kind of take a look at some of the new talent in the territory. We'll talk about the major angles, and uh, then we'll talk some about the crowds that were uh, growing each week during that entire year. So uh, let's start with the first uh, card in uh, 1977. Uh, Andre the Giant was on the huge, uh, pardon the expression huge, using it after saying Andre's name, but it was a huge Knoxville card of 1977, (laughs) an 18-man, two-ring battle royal, $12,000 at stake for the two winners. Uh, That was the main event on the card. Ronnie Garvin, Big Bad John, his manager, and sometimes his partner. Was on that card. Dick Steinborn, the original Gladiator. Some of these fans that remember and are, are been listening to all the studcasts will remember a lot of these names, man, from the early part of 77. Tag team champions, the Von Steiger brothers. Don Carnoodle, who's going to be a future Mid-Atlantic Territory star, is what's on that card. Dick Slater became a future Southeastern star in Knoxville. He's on that card. Norville Austin was on that card. And, uh, this card put about 4,000 people in the building and it got the year off to a great start. Uh, the first and only Southeastern Knoxville Cadillac tournament had begun just at the end of 1976. And, uh, at this point, uh, the Mongolian stomper is jumping into the fray, man. Uh, he's going to be on this, this card. As a matter of fact, he's going to be in that uh, battle royal and he's going to end up, uh, beating the hell out of his two opponents, beating the hell out of my brother who was his partner and then eating the check. What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, in his first appearance, he's going to make a splash. Yep. Sure enough, man, on the first <laughs> night they ever see uh, him. Yeah. <laughs> and that was on in January of 1977. So, uh, you know, uh, there's a whole lot going on in this one, man. Uh, stomper then is going to be managed later on in that month by Don Carson. And, uh, you know, he was already a force, man, and he already owned the Southeastern Championship belt. By the end of January, everybody in the, the country, and especially in that part of the country, was talking about the crazy Mongolian stomper. So February 1977, it brought about a newcomer named Rip Smith, came to Southeastern, and uh, everybody saw the end of the Cadillac tournament. And in what was a fantastic finals. Bob Armstrong, Beat Ronnie Garvin. The match was great, man. But it was it was just uh, what happened after the match was what really freaked out the Coliseum, which was just about full for this uh, Cadillac Finals match. Bob Armstrong was still in the, rec- the ring when it when it was over, kind of recovering because he just barely got the victory over Ronnie Garvin. And uh, you know, and Garvin, man, he was determined to. to to make his legend that was fast growing from jumping off the, the top rope and my throat and keeping me from beating terry funk uh, earlier in the year uh, he wanted to really keep that name and that reputation growing and he what he did is he went straight to the cadillac sitting in the building in front of plain sight of everybody and uh, and he attacked instead of Bob Armstrong, he attacked his Cadillac, man. He picked up a steel stanchion that had roped off the car from the fans during the course of the matches that night. And, uh, boy, that stanchion didn't stop Garvin, man. And he reached over and kissed the hood of the Cadillac, and then he grabbed that steel stanchion, raised it over his head, and he slammed it through the front windshield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that beautiful car, man. Yep. I mean, you know. And there'd probably been many, many car tournaments throughout the country and the world before this one, but I don't have any doubt this was the very first time a loser, one of those Cadillac matches or car matches, intentionally went over and tore up the car that he lost. So it was one of the most talked-about angles of the year, man. It is the kind of angle that built territories, man. It made wrestling fans for life. You know, and it certainly didn't hurt Ronnie Garvin's drawing power either. No, I mean, he was really, really getting some heat as a heel.
0: I remember you describing it in the stud cast about that day in the Knoxville Coliseum. And then I saw the photo of the steel pole sticking out of that huge hole in the car window. I can't imagine being one of the fans standing near the car and watching that happen right there in front of everybody.
1: It was it was definitely unforgettable, Dave, no doubt about that. And obviously it brought about a return match the very next week. Garvin comes back and he puts up $12,000 of his own money to get another chance to win the car. And by golly, he loses again. <laughs> so uh, he has another costly afternoon in February, man, of 1977. Those two Cadillac matches both catapulted the cards and the crowds. Over 5,000 people. I mean, uh, both of them started putting a huge crowd in that coliseum. And this was the beginning of 77. So March, man, came roaring in like a lion. Uh, And it came with it was a bunch of new talent, man, newcomers. Ricky Gibson showed up. Mike Stallings came in. Jerry Stubbs made his debut there. These were all young guys. But they were all great wrestlers. And they were all destined to become stars. And then one more came that's going to change Southeastern. And that was Bob Orton Jr. arrived. Not, not only did he have an attitude, but he had this awful history between him and Ronnie Garvin. They, they had had a problem uh, earlier, long before he got there. So, as much as fans despised Garvin, they preferred him to Bob Orton Jr. <laughs> Orton Jr. had a lot of heat from the very beginning. And their feud began and Garvin quickly, now this is in March, you know, of, uh, of uh, 1977, uh, Garvin quickly became a fan favorite. Once you put him against Garvin, we got him against Garvin, wow, fans went, they got into that match, and one of the reasons is those two guys were fantastic in the ring together, so just as quickly, Ronnie came to me and Rob, and you probably may remember this one, Dave, uh, you know, and he, he says, I got to go home to Canada, <laughs> Yeah, I got a yeah, lead. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and we said, "Well, sure." Said, well, yeah, when you're coming back, I I may never come back. He says, right? So you know, so you know, in four in four short weeks, there, Garvin moved from being a top heel to a top baby face, and then suddenly he's gone. Period. He lost to Dorden Junior. in the loser leave southeastern match, and uh, my brother and I thought we'd never see Ronnie Garvin again. So April of 1977 rolls around, and that month was built around the arrival of the NWA, the New NWA World Champion Harley Race. He's coming in at the end of the month, and before he got there, another guy shows up, a newcomer man. Uh, that uh, and uh, wow, what a star he becomes! Tony Charles makes his American debut in southeastern wrestling. And uh, along with a great tag team from the Memphis side of the state, Tommy Wildfire Rich and superstar Bill Dundee start showing up. Uh, and that invasion from Memphis is beefed up by Jerry the King Lawler, who's going to show up at the end of that month uh, in April. Then, uh, and another great heel and huge bonus for Southeastern, Terry Funk, who was just, Rock the building, man, in uh, <laughs> October of 1976 when he wrestled me for the world title. He comes back, uh, and I wrestle him the week before Harley Race is defend the title, and whoever wins that match is going to get the shot at Harley, and I'm able to win that one. So all this led up to maybe the greatest card in Southeastern and probably the state of Tennessee's history, no doubt. Uh, two world title matches. Uh, This was on April 27th, the end of the month, two world title matches, five title matches and all on one card. Two of those five championship matches came out of that group of stars from Memphis. Uh, And it drew a reported 6,300 fans. Uh, Many people say uh, that the crowd was far beyond that figure. Either way, It broke the all-time Coliseum attendance record for a sports event. That record still stands. 44 years later, they've never drawn more people for a sports event in that building than that. And it was the event that was talked about around the world uh, and started uh, Southeastern's reputation as the best small territory anywhere.
0: Oh, easily. All right. So, hey, this seems like a good place for a break. Let's do that. This has been really a fascinating ride so far. Stars from all over the world and angles never done before. So, no wonder Southeastern has become so famous. And hey, on the way to the break, let's remind you to find Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. Subscribe, ring the bell to get reminders on when the greatest stories in wrestling will be dropped on YouTube. And be sure to tell your friends about Southeastern Rewind. We'll come back. This studcast will continue. Right after this break, stay with us. Hey, it's David Summers. Ron and I both want to thank all the listeners all over the world for your continued support. Please enjoy the Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel during this break for Ron. Nine tremendous continental TV shows and 19 great USA TV shows are there now. 13 fantastic stud stories from historical to hysterical are there for your enjoyment. The last eight stud are there too. An original Southeastern Knoxville TV show from 1978. Dory Funk Jr. and Terry Funk. Original interview. Never before heard from the 1990s about the future of wrestling and so much more. Subscribe now and enjoy your holidays. And thanks. All right, everybody. Welcome back in. Another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I'm David Summers. All right, Ron. My guess is we are riding into the summer of 1977.
1: Well, you're right again, my man. Uh, you know uh, we're going to be into May of 1977 now, and it was the first time in the month of May that every event we had was in the Coliseum. Normally, we were always out there in Highway Park, but we we're having such a good year in 1977, we stay all the way through May out there in the Coliseum. Southeastern was on fire, man. Not just in Knoxville. But in every city where we went, the buildings everywhere were just too small. Selling out every building every night in every town we went to. I uh, just wish we'd had a lot bigger buildings back in those days, man. Uh, a lot of people were getting turned away. So uh, Bob Orton Jr., let's just go kind of go back to what was happening in the ring uh, in May of 1977. Borden Jr., he, he was continuing his impressive run of winning loser-leave Southeastern matches. He had run off Ronnie Garvin. Uh, now he ran off Jimmy Golden in the month of May of 1977. And on that same night, the first week in May, uh, a masked man arrived on the scene and called himself Mr. Knoxville. Uh, Bob Borden Jr. complained about it on TV the next day. It had been about five weeks since... Uh, Ronnie Garvin had lost, mm-hmm. and he complained about uh, how much this guy looked like Ronnie Garvin, had, and uh, and he and then he picked up on the fact that and this guy likes to jump off the top rope and wrestlers' throats. You mean how many guys would like to do that? You know, right? <laughs> so you know, but the fans didn't seem to mind. You know, they were glad to see him back, man. They they were really happy about it. So Mister Knoxville's first night, okay. He went up against a Mongolian stomper, who was the guy he was involved with that, that got him into the loser leave match the following week. After that match, with uh, Bob Orton Jr., which was about five weeks earlier than the time frame we're talking about, and uh, and he was a favorite again. He came back, Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin. He's a favorite again. His first night back, but uh, you know he didn't wrestle Orton in that night. In fact, he didn't wrestle Orton in that entire first month that he had come back. And uh, In the same time frame, I had another shot schedule Harley race in June after the time limit draw I'd had with him on April 27th and that all-time record crowd at the Coliseum. Yeah. Terry Funk return, returned again in May, two times. He came once to wrestle me in a Texas death match, and that filled the Coliseum again. It was around 6,000 people again. And uh, then uh, he came back uh, two weeks later after that to team up with the Mongolian Stomper to wrestle me and my brother in the tag match. That had filled the Coliseum that night. (laughs) So it was during that time frame that Mongolian Stomper changed his manager. It had been Don Carson. From the very first time that he came there by himself the first night, but then Don Carson took it over his management. And then all of a sudden, in May of 1977, the flamboyant, gorgeous George Jr. man entered Southeastern. So Bob Armstrong and Jerry Lawler during that month kept swapping the Southern Heavyweight Championship belt as they wrestled in both Memphis and Knoxville several times in May of 1977. My grandfather in Jerry Jarrett's territory over there was extremely hot, like Southeastern, but not as hot as Southeastern. Tennessee wrestling fans on both sides of the state, man, they were seeing some of the greatest wrestling in the world. And then in the middle of the state, where we had Nick Gulis, a the promoter. They weren't seeing anything worth a crap. You know, it's this, it was a strange state, man, in uh, May of 1977, what was going on in Tennessee. So we continued our longest coliseum run yet. We wrestled on into June of 1977. Uh, Mr. Knoxville became very unhappy uh, because this big giant lumberjack named Joel the Duke arrived in Southeastern the first week in June. And... Uh, and he was, uh, this, this Lumberjack was uh, very upset about his brother being hurt, put out of wrestling by Ronnie Garvin and Bob Orton Jr. when they were mid-American tag team champions in Kansas City. You know, so Mr. Knoxville, uh, he abandoned. <laughs> you know, he, the first night he's booked, uh, you know, the Joe LaDuca rides, he's booked with a partner uh, against uh, Mr. Knoxville and Tony Charles. So, uh, you know, Mr. Knoxville's very unhappy about this, you know. And then the next week, uh, Mr. Knoxville, uh, he leaves Tony Charles in the middle of that match. He wants nothing to do with Joe Duke. the first time they are ever in the ring together. And he avoids him entirely, leaves uh, Joe, uh, Tony Charles in there by himself. And uh, then the next week, Mr. Knoxville shows up in a huge tag tournament that's for this held-up Southeastern Tag Championship, a great tournament. Got the kangaroos from Australia, uh, great great tag teams from all over the world. And uh, Mr. Knoxville shows up with a partner uh, for that tournament, and guess who that is? Bob Borden Jr. So, <laughs> wow, they're back <laughs> together again. Uh, okay. Both of them, I think, trying to keep from seeing if they can survive Joe Duke being there. So uh, so if that wasn't enough, the same night that Mr. Knoxville shows up with Bob Warden Jr. as a partner, he gets involved with my match with the Stomper, and for the second time in less than a year, he jumps off the top rope in my throat. <laughs> he hurts me. He collects Harley Race bounty money. He costs me a shot at Harley Race two weeks later that I'm booked in to wrestle Harley again. And then he ends the night by winning the damn t- southeastern tag belts with Bob <laughs> Orton Jr. <laughs> All
0: right, now I would call that a really good night for a heel, Ron. <laughs> I mean, that had to have put some inst- instant heat on him.
1: <laughs> well, well, the only thing he could have done worse than that, Dave, is to beat up a poor crippled lady in a wheelchair on ringside <laughs> or something. <laughs> I mean, uh, I he just- You talk about having a heel night, man. That's a wonderful heel night. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Obviously, uh, Mr. Knoxville uh, goes from being a real star, baby face to an instant heel, man. And uh, and a very hated one at that.
2: Wow. So uh,
1: Bob Armstrong, he ends the month in this super match, man. What a great match he has with Harley Race uh, for the world title, man. He takes my place. And, uh, and the, it draws almost as many fans as the April match in the Coliseum, you know. And uh, and for, uh, you know, so in July, uh, we're coming out into July of 1977, it brought some more new stars, man. Uh, Sylvester Ritter, who is going to be the future uh, Mid South star, man, star of stars, their greatest star ever, Junkyard Dog, uh, comes in and uh, he, He's not the junkyard dog when he arrives, but before he leaves, he is the junkyard dog. And uh, he came, uh, came into southeastern and uh, and also one half of the world famous uh, Australian kangaroo tag team Al Costello, who was there for that tournament, never leaves. And what he does is he's a smart dude. He's he's in that tournament and the one that uh, is won by Mister Knoxville and Bob Borden Jr. And he doesn't win the tournament, but he's smart enough. He becomes the manager of the two guys who won it, man. So, so he fits right <laughs> in the Southeast. And so, and Joe Laduke during this month, his July nineteen seventy seven, was just amazing. The fans with feats of strength, man, on television and some of them at the at the arenas. Wow! And Joe Laduke was a force to be reckoned with. I mean, he was just. Wow, he, they'd never seen anything like him, man, in that part of the country. Every week, it seemed like, during this time of year, was a sellout. Not only in Knoxville and at the huge amphitheater, man, but in all the small cities. Everywhere we worked in that, in that summer of 1977 was just full, this massive crowds, Now, the Duke and the Stomper. Uh, getting a brand new cage, man, that month, uh, in a cage steel cage built for them, man. You know, we had a dinky steel cage there for, for years. And, uh, I went and had them build a great one, man. And, uh, mm-hmm. wow. They, they, uh, drew a monster crowd. We put them in the cage. They drew an absolutely monster crowd. Actually the new Southeastern attendance record. Uh, was broken that night in Shilhoui Park's amphitheater. Wow. Proved to be the largest uh, crowd ever for Southeastern, bigger than the Coliseum record. Wow. wow. So, uh, August of 1977, uh, Roy Lee Welch, another one of my Welch cousins uh, besides Jimmy Golden, uh, he made his debut in August of 77. Joel LeDuc and the Mongolian Stomper Man that entire month gave the fans some of the bloodiest matches in wrestling history. Every Friday night of that month, those guys were just beating each other up big time. Uh, In the month of August 1977 came that legendary blockbusting angle and took place on TV over a two-week period in August of 77. Fans nowhere else in the world other than Southeastern Wrestling Got to see anything like that, man. Uh, it was another of those moments that made territories great. And believers out of people that had said many times before that wrestling isn't real. And, uh, wow, if they watched that, <laughs> they, <laughs> they couldn't say that, no, never again. Joe Leduc paid the price for it, man. Uh, spent days in the hospital. And he had pain in his neck probably for the rest of his life, uh,
2: Mm -hmm. and and we
1: talked about it after he was released from the hospital i told him how sorry i was man for what had happened to him and he instantly when we talked about it reminded me that he was the one that insisted he wanted to do it and that him and it was him and the stompers idea that it was not my idea and uh and that i did everything i could to stop him but uh you know but then he ended up saying he was never going to regret it though you know and he said he considered it to be one of the greatest things he had ever done in the ring because nobody else is ever even going to try it again. Said, you know, <laughs> do it, nobody will ever try it even, you know? Yeah. And, you know, he said, you know, Ron, he said, all those people that said it ain't real and all that stuff. He said, I silenced all those people, all those critics. And, and uh, And none of them, none of them ended up being a believer, man, after they saw that. Uh, And he said, it only took a single second, man, (laughs) to make believers out of people that never would have believed. And he goes, no one, he said, is ever going to be able to take that away from me, Ron. Oh, you know, yeah, great conversation, man. It made me feel, uh, made me feel somewhat better, man.
0: Yeah, yeah, but but as you said, at what cost? Because it stayed with him really forever. So for those that have never seen this literal, literally block-busting event with a real sledgehammer on the heads of the Mongolian Stomper and Joe LaDuke, it happened in 1977 on Southeastern TV, you have missed one of the defining moments in wrestling history. And I tell you, Ron, lots of people have... <laughs> they've seen this thing, have said it's one of the best angles ever in the sport. But in my opinion, nothing I've ever seen is not going to touch this. It just doesn't come close.
1: <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I had to agree with you on that part. Of it, you know, and, and I had a real, real, real hard time feeling proud of it because Joe got hurt. And, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah. but what Joe yeah. said to me afterward, man, is kind of the only thing, man, that allows me to deal with what happened in August of 1977. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that makes me want to move on quickly to September 77. Uh, you know, we were doing some big crowds in Knoxville, obviously, the entire year. But uh, September is traditionally the worst month, one of the absolute worst months of the year for sports. And especially for wrestling. And, uh, wow, we did big business, man. The fair was in town. And, uh, you know, we weren't even in our usual buildings. You couldn't run in high Park. You couldn't get into the Coliseum. So we were running the baseball stadium. It didn't make any difference. We have really set records in September of 1977. We ran two events that month in the Coliseum. That was absolutely unheard of, man. So we were still big enough to go to the Coliseum in the month of September. Uh, Big Bill Dromo, uh, some of the guys that were not normally there, Big Bill Dromo showed up. Dutch Mantell was there that month. Jerry Lawler was on two of those four shows in that month. And the last two weeks of September, like I said, we were in the Coliseum even. So the last week of the the month was a fantastic one-night tournament, and uh, it was to find an opponent for Harley Race who was coming for his third NWA title defense in the month, in the year of 1977. Uh, just showed how much we had grown there. We used to get the world champion. We were lucky to get him once a year. There's Harley in, in a period of uh, six months that's going to come three times. So all of a sudden, you know, uh, we were on the map as far as uh, wrestling was concerned by that point. Uh, then uh, in this tournament, it was an eight-man tournament, and it was loaded with talent. Terry Funk came back. He wanted to be any opportunity he had to get another shot at Harley Race. He came to Knoxville because he figured he could get it, and he never did get it that way. You know, and uh, the assassin returned on this one, got into that tournament. Great star, been gone for two years. The plus on that card was a lights-out match with Bob Armstrong against Don Carson. There was a Southeastern Tag Championship match on that card. Uh, it was a crowd of almost 5,000 fans in the week of September. I would have never dreamed that we'd do that kind of business, man, wow. by, uh, two years earlier than that. Yeah. So October of 77 began with the world title card in the Coliseum, the one I just mentioned, the two world title matches, me against Harley, Tony Charles against Nelson Royal, plus two Southeastern title matches, and an extremely important match that night, another lights out match between Don Carson and Don and uh, Bob Brad between Bob Armstrong and Don Carson. And the deal was in this one that the loser is going to leave Southeastern. Hmm. So Bob Armstrong got beaten that night, uh, October 5th, 1977. He left Southeastern and, uh, and it was all due to the uniting of two great heels, man, the assassin and Don Carson. This crowd in October was really close to another sellout again. Uh, a newcomer in that same month of October named Ronald Pope, uh, who just happened to be Bruiser Brody before he came became Brody, uh, was on a couple of cards that month. So, you know, we had a young Bruiser Brody in, in Southeastern uh, that month, too. And it was by far the best October we'd ever had. Two weeks after Bob Armstrong lost and left, I lost a loser-leave match to the Mongolian stomper, and uh, that match that I lost was certainly affected by the same two guys uh, that forced Bob out of Southeastern: Don Carson and the Assassin. They were starting to take over Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, November 1977 saw two legends right off the bat take on each other: the Korean Pak Song. Wrestled against Mr. Wrestling Number Two, Johnny Walker, in a match that many people would call a main event anywhere in the world. Uh, Southeastern got it. It also was the breakup of maybe the best Southeastern tag team of all time: Mr. Knoxville, Ronnie Garvin, and Bob Borden Jr. They broke up that month, and wow, it was a wi- it was a violent breakup, man. I mean, geez, it's just shocking, man. And, uh, and that breakup also caused the end of Al Costello, man. He was injured in it, and he had to leave Southeastern. He was never <laughs> seen again. Uh, and gone as well. Two weeks later, it was discovered that Ron Wright was the man behind all this stuff that had taken place that got rid of Bob Armstrong. <laughs> and that got rid of me. It turned out to be, uh, as, as, as the way they put it, uh, uh, the deal with they made the deal with the devil. And by gosh, the devil turned out to be Ron Wright, man. And uh, so, uh, you know, he put things together with Don Carson and the Assassin. They became the Southeastern Tag Champions before the end of 77. Uh, November was highlighted by the first ever Southeastern Thanksgiving night, the end of the month, in the, in the Coliseum for the first time ever. And Joe Duke and the Stomper met for the first time in many months. Uh, there was a World's Lady Championship with the fabulous Mula. Uh, She made her Southeastern debut. The crowd was in the same range, same size as that big one of April 27, 1977, the all-time record. Hmm. It was right there at that same figure. And almost as many attended as uh, April 27, 77, when I wrestled Harley. And again, man, records were set all month long everywhere we went in November. So you come to December, 1977. And uh, it's still far beyond what I ever anticipated to see in a month like December. Business was so good the first two weeks in Knoxville that month that we were in the Coliseum wrestling in December. That's absolutely unheard of in any territory. It doesn't make any difference anywhere in the country. You didn't, in the first two weeks of December, Mm -hmm. go into your biggest building. You were lucky to fill your smaller building. Yeah. And uh, we were going yeah. in the big building. So it's absolutely unheard of. And, uh, you know, December uh, never drew anything until you got to Christmas night. Everybody's business exploded when Christmas night came. But before that, you didn't do any business. So speaking of Christmas night, we couldn't get in the Coliseum. They didn't want to have us there. We're going to be there in 78. But uh, we had the last event in the year. In Childs Howie's Parks Jacob Building, and we put more than four thousand fans in there, and probably turned away four thousand fans. So uh, wow, wow, this just the the end of the year ended up phenomenal.
0: Oh yeah, and I got to tell you, this has been a remarkable review of Southeastern Wrestling's nineteen seventy seven. I think you covered most everything of importance from that year, and it was a big year. I think you also said that we would end with maybe a look at the first card of 1978. Is that what we're going to do?
1: Uh, yep. A, I'll do that for us, my man. I sure will. Uh, and actually, this card and the first one in 1978 is going to fall on New Year's Day, on uh, January 1st, uh, on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, it's going to be the third annual two-ring battle royal. It's going to have $15,000 prize to the two winners, uh, up 3000 from the year before it's going to have a record 20 guys in it rather than the 18 from 1977 uh, plus it's going to have a south southeastern championship match with the winner getting the belt that had been held up since December 9th 1977 which was the last title match between stomper and uh, and uh, jola duke uh, so uh, you know they they're going to give it we're going to have a southeastern champion again mm-hmm. on that that afternoon and the Southeastern tag match was on that card with the champions, Don Carson and the Assassin, managed by Ron Wright, the devil himself, <laughs> defending against Robert Fuller and uh, Thunderbolt Patterson. So there was a total of eight matches on that card, plus the two ring battle royal is a heck of a way to start off your 78.
0: Oh, no and kidding. That one,
1: <laughs> I got to go in. I'll throw in the crowd. That one is at 6,000. Wow. So, okay. you know, we just, uh, it's just. It's, it's unbelievable what's happening in Southeastern.
0: That is so cool. And the two-ring battle royal on top of all that. So that's a great card stud. So were there any special wrestlers in that battle royal that you would point out or make mention of?
1: Well, as a matter of fact, Dave, there was, uh, you know, I had made this deal. Now I remember I had made the deal. I think I talked about it a great deal in the last cast. Uh, we're going to get into it big time in the next one. Uh I'd made the deal and I'd bought Gulf Coast Wrestling from Lee Fields. And uh, and I had brought in on this card, this first one in 1978, some big names that I'd never seen work but that I'd heard of because I'm looking for talent for my second territory. So uh, the Sheik was on this card. Uh, First card, first time only, he worked for me. First and only time he ever worked for me. The Sheik was on the card. Uh, Jimmy Golden was returning to Southeastern after a long, long time out. Uh, Jim Brunzel of the the, uh, AWA territory out there in Minnesota, man, Vern Gagne's territory, who is going to be one of the future killer bees, man, with Brian Blair. Uh, Jim Brunzel's on the card. Terry Sawyer's on the card. Byron Kidd's on the card. Frankie Lane was on that card. Big Jim Wilson was on that card. (laughs) It was like, wow, who's who, man, and uh, I got to look at a lot of great talent that day.
0: Okay, so the Sheik was on the card. You made mention of that. Okay, did did he want to write himself in as bleeding a lot?
1: Uh, sheik didn't do very much. I can tell you that. Uh, sheik felt, I know this for sure. You know, having seen his face in the dressing room, right? And he was looking around at the talent.
0: Yeah. And the Sheik
1: felt very much out of place. He's probably Uh, not set in the dressing room with that much great talent, maybe in his career.
0: Wow. Okay. Listen, I'll tell you, it sounds like 1978 is going to be another tremendous year for Southeastern Wrestling. I want to make sure everyone is aware that there will be no stud cast. Again, we mentioned this earlier, but another reminder, next Wednesday, December 29th of 2021, we'll be back with the next stud cast number two thirty-one, Wednesday. January 5th of the new year, 2022. So please join us then as Ron rides into Southeastern wrestling, 1978. It's going to be another wonderful historical occasion.
1: Well, you know, hey, and thank you. Uh, thank you. I just want to thank everybody out there, man. Uh, don't get a chance to do it enough. And uh, so I want to make sure that, uh, everybody uh, knows how much i thank them for uh, for all their support man and i and i wish everybody out there a merry christmas and a happy new year and words just cannot express how much support uh, the support from everybody for the stud cats for the southeastern rewind youtube channel for my website that gets visited so much by fans uh i just want to thank all of you so much for it and uh and also want to thank the good Lord, man, for another great year and being able to do this, man. And uh, please take uh, the time out there, everybody, to remember what this time of year is all about. And, uh, take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all.
0: For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Merry Christmas. Find me at David Productions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud.
1: One, two, three.
0: This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.